That wraps up the second hour of Africa Rise and Shine. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news and the final hour of the show is Masibamba Neni by Simpuedana featuring Salif Keta.
Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zola Africa Amka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine this morning. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka and Tabisolo Hoku. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Bars, nightclubs and schools in Zambia opened as the country gets on a path of recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Civil society actors in the DRC continued discussions about electoral reforms ahead of the upcoming elections expected in 2023. And in economics news, Zimbabwe's small-scale and artisanal miners urged to exercise caution in their operations as cases of mine accidents leading to death and injuries are rife. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. The World Health Organization has announced a record one-day increase in the number of new coronavirus infections, with just over 300,000 cases reported in the last 24 hours. The UN Health Agency says deaths have risen by more than 5,500, bringing the global total to over 900,000. The biggest increases in infections are in India, the U.S. and Brazil. Meanwhile, South Africa has recorded 20 new COVID-19-related fatalities in the last 24-hour cycle, bringing the national death toll to 15,447. 1,579 new coronavirus infections have been recorded, bringing the cumulative number of cases to 649,793. So, Lega Kota reports. Of the 20 new COVID 19 related fatalities, Gauteng in the Western Cape recorded six deaths each, while Kwazulu Natal in the Eastern Cape registered four each. Meanwhile, all nine provinces recorded increases in coronavirus infections, with Gauteng, the epicenter of the pandemic in the country, accounting for most of the cases at 309 infections. The M5 RFP coalition in Mali that led anti-government protests before last month's coup has rejected a political charter pushed through by the ruling junta. After three days of talks with political leaders and civil society groups, the junta's roadmap was meant to chart an agreed transition after the August 18 coup and reassure international powers which fear Mali's political turmoil could further destabilize the region. M5 RFP said the final version of the charter did not reflect the results of negotiations, which it said included a majority choice of a civilian interim president. Instead, the charter says the interim president can be a civilian or a soldier. The parallel government in eastern Libya has submitted its resignation after a series of protests over deteriorating living conditions and corruption. Protesters in the city of Benghazi set fire to the living quarters of the military commander Khalifa Haftar. They also clashed in the stronghold of Al-Maj for the first time. 
Six refugees from South Sudan have been killed and four others injured in a resettlement camp in Madi Okolo in northwestern Uganda. Police say 13 villagers have been arrested in connection with the deaths. The killings happened after a number of refugees assaulted a local man who was grazing his cattle near the resettlement camp. Uganda hosts some 1.4 million refugees, more than any other country in Africa, with most coming from neighboring South Sudan. The Iranian government is reportedly weighing an assassination attempt against the U.S. ambassador to South Africa, Lana Marx. A story about a U.S. intelligence report has been referenced by two officials who are familiar with the intelligence. Sharon Price Peace reports that U.S. intelligence believes that the Iranian embassy in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, is involved in the alleged plot. The Politico story says U.S. officials had been aware of a general threat against Ambassador Lana Marks since the autumn months in South Africa and that intelligence linked to the U.S. envoy had become more specific in recent weeks. The intelligence suggests that an attack on Ambassador Marks is one of several alleged options. Officials believe Iran's government is considering in retaliation for the assassination of Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani in January. The Politico report says U.S. officials had made Ambassador Marks aware of the intelligence. The report indicates that Ambassador Marx's personal friendship with President Donald Trump might have been a consideration for the Iranians in their alleged targeting of her. And in sports, Japan's Naomi Osaka came from a set down to beat Victoria Azarenka of Belarus to win the U.S. Open and clinch her third Grand Slam title. Osaka, the fourth seed, overcame her unseeded opponent, won 6-6-3-6-3 inside a near-empty Arthur Ashe Stadium at Flushing Meadows. Osaka, of Japanese and Haitian heritage, wore different masks honoring victims of racial injustice and police brutality in each round of the tournament. She she also donned face coverings bearing the names of Breonna Taylor, Elijah McLean, Ahmed Aubrey, Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, and Philando Castro, and brought 22-year-old Osaka's Hall of Tennis major trophies to three after her victories at the 2018 U.S. Open and 2019 Australian Open. And Austria's Dominic team finally claimed his first Grand Slam title with a stunning comeback to beat Germany's Alexander Zverev. 2646646376 in the US Open final. The 27 year old world number three, Britain, in his first three Grand Slam finals, started as favorite but appeared to have blown his golden chance as he fell two sets behind. Team who had dropped only one set en route to the final looked stifled by nerves early on but gradually broke the shackles to hit back from a breakdown to take the third. The rather Zverev faltered on a serve at 3-4 in a high-quality fourth set, allowing team to take the contest to a decider. A limping team trailed 5-3 in a high-quality decider, but summoned some incredible baseline winners to take it into a nerve-jangling tie-break. An astonishing climax saw a team squander two match points from 6-4, but when a third opportunity came from Zverev, fired wide after four hours and two minutes. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaka. Headlines at 7.30. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Thank you, Amanda. It's 7.07 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Bars, nightclubs and schools in Zambia have been opened as the country looks at ways of recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic. During an address to Parliament on Friday, Zambia's President Edgar Lungu, who made a number of pronouncements of which bars and schools stood prominent, however cautioned against laxity in order not to fall back to having many COVID-19 cases. Athasagopa reports. Coronavirus or COVID-19 has, in its words, brought to a standstill various developmental sectors around the world. Economies have been brought to their knees and poverty escalated, with no much attention given to other challenges in the health sector save for COVID-19. But now, countries are opening up and Zambia is no exception. During his last official opening of Zambia's parliament, Before the country goes to the polls in 2021, Zambia's president, Edgar Lungu, has decided to open bars and nightclubs and schools as the country looks at ways to recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. The country continues to record minimal cases of COVID-19. And Zambia's president, Edgar Lungu, has decided to open schools effective today, 14th September, and bars partially opened effective last Friday, though with a directive for strict adherence to COVID-19 preventative measures. I've also heard the cries of pupils, the cries of students, the cries of teachers and lecturers, the cries of parents, and the cries of owners of schools. I therefore wish to announce the reopening of all schools. Colleges and universities, of course, again, with caution. And this will have to be done between the 14th of September 2020 and 28th of September 2020. With bars, it was jubilation as many patrons flocked to the bars and nightclubs, despite them only being opened on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m., respectively. I have a Zambia National Education Coalition, OZANEC whose head, George Hamusunga, welcomes the decision by President Lungu to open the schools. We are glad that the president has listened to our call in a timely manner, and we are positive that the action taken by government will help in mitigating the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the education sector. To this effect, we would like to call upon all schools to act swiftly and ensure that they put in place all the COVID-19 public health prevention measures so that they are certified ready in good time. But Zanik has concerns over payment of fees and other obligations by parents and learners as the opening has been urgent and unpredicted. Zanek is further calling upon school and college managements to ensure that they give parents a reasonable grace period for paying school fees. Therefore, Zanek would not like to see children failing to report back to school on account of their failure to afford the payment of full school fees. Bars and Nightclubs Association representative Edwin Lifuekelo equally welcomes the opening of bars and nightclubs, saying the wheels of the economy partially lies in the alcohol production industry. As Zambia slowly opens up sectors following the COVID-19 attack, it now stands at over 13,000 cases recorded, of which over 11,000 have recovered, and over 1,000 cases are active today, and over 300 deaths have been so far been recorded. The president, during his parliamentary address, further urged lawmakers to attend to matters that Zambians 
feel in need of and called on all lawmakers to put Zambia as priority in their debates. This parliament is further expected to debate the controversial constitutional amendment bill number 10 of 2019 and vote to have it pass into law or it falls off. Arthur Devsuskopo reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia. Zimbabwe's land compensation announced a few weeks ago has been put to the test by some fresh farm invasions targeting white commercial farmers. Martin Khrobla, a renowned tobacco farmer on the outskirts of Harare, lost his Rua farm on Friday to a former government employee, a move that has exposed corruption in the land allocation exercise. For compensation, government has set aside at least 3.5 billion US dollars and foreign farm owner, former land owners have been asked to return to the farms they lost in the early 2000s as government desperately seeks to restore its image in the eyes of the West. Simon Muchama reports from Harare. Martin Grobler has been successfully farming tobacco for nearly 25 years at Protea Farm on the outskirts of Harare. Like every other white commercial farmer, he was targeted for eviction during the chaotic land grab in the early 2000s but he remained on the farm after court challenges. Martin was, however, evicted from his farm on Friday to pave way for a former government employee who is also believed to be related to President Emerson Mnangagwa. The fresh land grab comes barely two weeks after government announced details of the 3.5 billion US dollar compensation to the white farmers for the loss of their farms. Indigenous Zimbabweans, on one hand, are bitter white commercial farmers are returning to the farms and say government is trying to appease the West in the failed re-engagement process. Channel Africa spoke to a dejected and desperate Martin on the fresh farm eviction. Originally, I was given an offer letter for that property through the proper official means. The schedule I was on was Schedule 55. I I have a copy of that and the date my offer letter was printed. However, uh, this lady, Mrs. Ivy Rupondi, was given an offer letter for the same property. She was asked by the government officials at that time to come and find another property, which she refused. So then the matter um, went quiet for a while. Then in October 2015, a lady by the name of Mrs. Muchimwa invaded my... Um, we have three houses on the farm. She invaded my son's house at four o'clock in the morning. She hired some thugs, and they broke in through the fence and broke down the door, broke down the water system. All this is recorded. Um, we have all the evidence of it. This Mrs. Muchimwa took over the, uh, a section of the farm We've ended up leasing from from her that section because our main tobacco curing tunnel is on her section. She claims to be the daughter of our president. Martin alleges he lost the farm because government officials tampered with his records after refusing to pay a bribe of 100,000 US dollars. I actually had the offer letter in my hand because when I went to collect it, a sum of money was demanded for it which I couldn't get, uh, I couldn't produce. However, the schedule was produced to prove that I did have an offer letter, and that's what I went to 
when my lawyer took to court. But in a nutshell, none of that carried any weight because it was removed from the database. So this ended up in the Supreme Court because I had supposedly no evidence of having any right to, to stay on that farm. So that is why it, it, it can show you how much was removed, how much evidence was removed to prove that I was legitimate. However, I had some very honest people that I was dealing with in the Ministry of Lands besides the, the opposition, and they told me I am the legitimate offer letter holder of that property. But it didn't stand in court because that database had been totally removed in the legal department. Government responded via Twitter that an investigation into the latest farm invasion was underway as Zimbabwe seemed to have failed to guarantee rights to private property. Meanwhile, Martin is homeless, he said. We just got some fellow farmers to come and help move us off. One friend of mine who had a warehouse in Rua, has, so all our property is gone there, and we're trying to find a place to live. In Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Cabinet has decided to place the entire country on alert level 2, with effect from midnight on Monday, the 17th of August 2020. Alert level 2, in terms of our risk-adjusted strategy in dealing with the pandemic, means that there is moderate COVID-19 spread of the virus with a relatively high health system readiness. The move to level 2 means that we can remove nearly all of the restrictions on the resumption of economic activity across most industries. Channel Africa. It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Civil society actors in the Democratic Republic of Congo are busy discussing about electoral reforms ahead of the upcoming elections expected in the year 2023. The four-day conference brings together hundreds of participants who will make recommendations to be submitted to the National Assembly in order to allow the country to hold transparent elections for results to be accepted by all. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The Democratic Republic of Congo expects general elections including presidential and parliamentary polls in 2023. That's indeed the reason why the civil society has organized the conference underway since Wednesday here in Kinshasa to help the country avoid controversial results as this has always been the case. Presidential candidates Jean-Pierre Bemba and Joseph Kabila clashed due to the 2006 elections results. Same story for Etienne Chisekedi and Joseph Kabila in 2011 and recently the dispute over the 2018 election result was between Martin Fayulu and Felix Chisekedi. All this left thousands of Congolese dead and that's why the civil society actors are now discussing for electoral reforms for such situation to never happen again, according to Daniel Mamba from the organizing committee. As we want full reforms in the way elections are done. 
we demand the civil society, and that's why we think about people's problems on the ground. We need to suggest solutions to MPs for them to discuss and use them as bills of law. Some of the laws bring problems, and those are indeed the matters we have thought about. Participants at this civil society meeting believe the current electoral law has so many points that need to be revisited for this country's electoral process to be improved. One of the civil society actors, part of the conference underway here is Josephine Baila, a delegate from the Congolese Association for Justice Access, Akaj. She believes that something new will come out of this conference. We all expecting something new. Of course, we're not actually taking the place of a parliament, but we think that with what we've done here, those who has the responsibility to make it happen by changing the law, that they can introduce two or three thing that we can recommend to them so that the future election will be more representing everyone. There's that public manifestation which is the law still on the pipeline. No one wants to release it because I think people are afraid of that. But we think that it's important to have that law so people during the campaign can claim loudly if something is not right. On the other side, the civil society believes that the recommendations that are expected from this conference will be looked at as a fruit of consensus for the Congolese people on the ground. And regarding the disputes that always follow both presidential and parliamentary elections, Josephine Baila pleads for more administrative courts as up to now the matters are dealt with by the only constitutional court. We think that we need more administrative court that can work on um, electoral dispute because that is another problem. We just have constitutional court, but we think that for MPs, which is Parliament and other, we need more administrative court to work on those dispute electoral. We think that what we are doing here is the consensus for all Congolese and not for only civil society or uh, FCC or cash. But what we're doing here is for the national interest, so everyone will be in. Two weeks back, the Belgian University of Liège tried to organize a similar conference here, but this was suspended only a day after the opening, as most of expected people didn't attend. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. South Africa's international borders will soon open for travellers to boost the country's economy. This was the message from Transport Minister Figilim Balula over the weekend when he travelled from Oartambo International Airport in the Gauteng province to the Kingshaga International Airport in Durban, KwaZulu-Natal. He was inspecting the airport and airlines' compliance with COVID-19 regulations. Balula earlier received complaints from passengers that the COVID-19 protocols and regulations were being ignored. Lila Machnes reports. Transport Minister Fikile Balula says with international borders opening soon, compliance with the regulations is crucial. We can't allow uh, airlines to break uh, the the measures that have been set uh, by the government in relation to observing 
uh, stringent measures when it comes to safety on board. We are now at level two and uh, we are moving forward and uh, we are also looking at uh, opening international travel and uh, it is top on our agenda to look at that. He says opening the international borders will help grow the economy. You know our biggest issue is the economy, uh, livelihoods. The economy has got to come back uh, from where it was. And uh, we can uh, really pride ourselves with all the difficulties, we're doing very well. And uh, with all the challenges, we're doing very well. The complaint Mbalula received from aircraft passengers related to passengers being allowed not to wear masks inside airplanes, as well as a lack of sanitizing before boarding. Several people have been arrested for arriving at their destinations without wearing masks on planes or not adhering to COVID-19 protocols, confirmed the Civil Aviation Authority. Chief Operating Officer of the Airports Company South Africa, Fundese Tebe, says statistics show South Africans are regaining their trust in airlines. Definitely the numbers are growing, the airports are safe. We saw um, in June 30,000 passengers for this particular airport that's departing and arriving. We saw an increase in July, which is why I'm saying that there is definitely an increase in passenger confidence growing to 80,000. Now in the month of August, drop slightly to a number of about 70,000. We are prepared and we welcome all the passengers to come through in their numbers. She says there were 97% less passengers over the same period compared to last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mbalula found the airports and airlines did comply with the regulations after his inspection. I'm satisfied. Um, I think uh, the airlines uh, have adapted very well uh, to the new way of life. Uh, there could be challenges, and the challenge is not with the airlines, it's with the passengers. Uh, there are passengers who don't want to put on their uh, face mask inside the airlines, and uh, some of them have actually been arrested last week in Cape Town. But from a compliance point of view, professionalism of the airlines, uh, the tune inside the airline have changed its focus on COVID-19 and conscientizing the passengers about the rules. He says South Africa will do a risk assessment with each country before deciding to open the borders to that country and will be led by the international best practice. I am Lila Magnus in Pretoria. It's a problem faced by parents across the globe, though some are a little more fortunate than others. It's sleep deprivation and it's caused by cute and cuddly babies who wake up frequently throughout the night, leaving their parents red-eyed and exhausted. The problem has come to the fore even more during the national lockdown, with mums and dads having to work from home, as well as juggle the family and household responsibilities, all without having had a good night's sleep. Melanie Moses explores this issue and puts a sleep therapist to the test. Ronel Naidu can't remember the last time she had a full night's sleep. It certainly hasn't been over the past 18 months. It always felt just like as I shut my eyes, I was awake before I knew it. Advice came through from far and wide. 
you should put one dose of either kelpo or panado in his nighttime drink. A nice hot bath at night. Meal, bath, music and off to bed with lights out. Ronelle and her husband Jonathan gave it their best shot. Fixed vapor rub, white noise, no screens and technology after five. Cereal snack to fill him up after supper. Warm Milo as a feed at night, no visitors or calls at night time. But despite their efforts, little Ezra continued to wake up throughout the night. Good night, baby. Sleep therapist Raylene de Villiers says the Naidus are just one of thousands of families who daily endure sleepless nights. I even see parents who are up even up to 15, 20 times a night, which means that parents' sleep is very broken. A chronically overtired baby will have delayed milestones sometimes. A mother of triplet girls and a son, de Villiers confidently honed her skills into a profession after winning the battle in her own home. They learned how to sleep without being helped to sleep. But surely each baby is different. Is sleep therapy as simple as it sounds? As a mother myself of a 14-month-old non-sleeper, I decided to throw down a challenge to de Villiers. I knew that we had tried every trick in the book, from bath salts and magnesium supplements to mouth sprays, natural sleeping products and medication. Midnight, 1.30 a.m., 2 a.m., 2.45 a.m., 3.15 a.m., 4 a.m., 5.15 a.m. The wakings were constant. Sometimes we'd move her from her cot to our bed in the hope that she would rest in the comfort of our arms. It worked for a few minutes, but sooner or later it would start again. With demanding professions and only two to three hours of sleep a night, we were grumpy, clumsy and far from our peak. Like the Naidus, we slept in separate rooms to make sure at least one of us was able to function the next day. We couldn't possibly think of anything new de Villiers would bring in, but we resolved to do whatever she asked us to. De Villiers took us through the building blocks that make up good quality sleep. The first one is that I need to identify what the sleep associations are. So rocking, holding, feeding, bouncing, driving in the car. Building block number two is routine and schedule. Building block number three is the bedtime routine. So that is really, really crucial in dictating what your night will look like. Building block number four is nutrition. Number five is environment. And then the part that all parents dread. Crying is something that is going to happen during the sleep training process. We decided to stay true to our promise and so began the painstaking journey. We immediately put in place our daughter's personalized routine. The first night was the hardest. I spent an hour sitting outside her room going in from time to time to comfort her. But from the very next day, we began to see a remarkable difference as she began to conform to a routine. By the fourth night, she was sleeping through the entire night, going to bed at 7.30 p.m. and waking up at 6 a.m. There was even time for a bedtime story. Once upon a time, there were three bears. Uh, uh. It was life-changing. Psychologist Rani Samuel says a good night's sleep is essential to a family's health and well-being. A lack of sleep often leads to irritability, anger, fatigue, and it also lessens our ability to cope with daily stress. 
Sleep training is not for the faint-hearted, but if you're willing to put in a few days of hard work, you'll definitely reap the benefit. Melanie Moses, Johannesburg. At 7.31 Central African time and our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. In the headlines, Angola's Doctors' Union has led around 100 protesters in a march through the city centre in Luanda to denounce police brutality and demand an investigation into the suspicious death of Dr. Silvio Dalla in police custody. Six refugees from South Sudan have been killed and four others injured in a resettlement camp in Madiokolo in northwestern Uganda. And the World Health Organization has announced a record one-day increase in the number of new coronavirus infections, with just over 300,000 cases reported in the last 24 hours. Details at 8. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Amanda. The International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Society says it will play its part in educating communities around the world about the increasing climate change risks. The organization made the commitment to scale up its global climate action for the next decade as it hosted the first ever virtual climate red summit. The conference held over the past two days brought together climate change activists, indigenous leaders, scientists, as well as government ministers. For more on the outcomes of the summit, Channel Africa spoke to Dr. Martijn van Alst, who is the director of the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center. The Red Cross Red Crescent globally is a humanitarian organization. So maybe 20 years ago, people would have wondered, why are you worrying about climate change? But today, climate is a daily reality at the front lines of the rising risks. So our people are confronted by extreme weather events, changing seasons, changing diseases. So it's our daily reality. And in fact, last year, Red Cross Red Crescent leaders made climate one of the top five priorities for the coming 10 years to address. Now, it's one thing for leaders to say that, but the second is actually to put those words into action. And what this summit was all about is bring people from all over the world, more than 195 countries, together with their leaders and our partners, experts from the scientific world, politicians, to really think about what it takes to address those humanitarian consequences. Indeed. Uh, Doctor, you heard a high-profile panel uh, which uh, formed part of uh, the discussions that uh, were taking place, but uh, the summit was aimed at mobilizing a global network to meet a commitment of massively scaling up uh, IFRC climate action. Take us through some of the key outcomes. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, the commitment was amazing. Uh, and one of the things that was really special is that the outcomes reflect commitment, not just in terms of global agreements. Uh, we all see the, the importance of the Paris Agreement, for instance, that, that all governments in the, country, in, in the world agreed in 2015, and we want to do our part to implement it. But the special thing about this summit was the commitment to take those things from the global level to the national level to every national Red Cross or Red Crescent society, but then especially also into individual communities. 
So it is about understanding what is happening in your individual community. In my own country, the Netherlands, for instance, 650 people lost their lives in a heat wave the last summer. We didn't think of ourselves as a country susceptible to heat waves. And what it takes to reduce that mortality is for people in communities to take care of the elderly around them and ensure that they drink six glasses of water during those very hot days. It's those very practical, simple things that we were discussing. And what was exciting about the summit is the commitments that came out to do that, not just at the global level, not just at the national level, but in all of these communities around the world. The African continent has been at the receiving end of uh, climate change disasters as we speak. A number of African countries have been hit uh, by heavy rainfalls, uh, not forgetting the record uh, levels of flooding devastating Sudan at the moment. Uh, your own work um, has also shown that countries affected by conflict are also disproportionately impacted by climate change, a double threat that pushes people out of their homes. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Indeed. Um, I remember yesterday morning around this time, I was in a session with the executive director of the Somali Red Crescent Society, for instance, who was sharing first-hand examples of how people are affected by all these shocks together, climate, conflict, but indeed also COVID. And um, in those situations, for instance, the government is not always able to protect its population with, for instance, protective infrastructure like a dam to protect us from flooding. And it comes down to what communities can do themselves and often to humanitarian organizations. Um, One of the important things there is, first of all, to, to understand what people are facing. So to listen to local people, their experiences, also to understand their capacities to still manage the risk. But for humanitarian organizations, then also to do that in a way that helps them, not just after the fact when it is disaster has hit and, you know, when we need to bring food or water or provide shelter, but actually beforehand. And one element also that the um, executive director of Somali Red Crescent shared is better early warning systems. If people have access to information about what is coming their way, they may be able to take action in advance at least a bit better. Is it also your view, Dr. Martin, that the humanitarian crises uh, caused by climate change are the most underreported? Well, yes, it's evidence to our volunteers on the ground at the front lines every single day that this is already affecting us. Uh, But in the places that are worst affected, the data of what exactly is happening is often the courts. You know, we have the best records in terms of what's what's been observed in the weather uh, in the richest countries and the most vulnerable places are underserved in terms of even understanding scientifically what's happening. What we see basically from a science perspective is that the climate is changing everywhere in the world and we are having problems everywhere in the world, as we're seeing now today, even in California, for instance, as we saw last year with the bushfires in Australia. Um, This is hurting everyone. But what we also know is that the the worst price is paid paid by those people who are least able to cope with those increasing weather extremes. And that is often the people that have been most vulnerable to disasters and diseases in the past, but are now hit extra hard by the increases due to climate change. And that is exactly where our humanitarian work is often focused. It is uh, clear that many communities don't need warnings about uh, the consequences consequences of climate change because they are already experiencing them firsthand, isn't it? But are warnings um, important, Doctor, in terms of alleviating the humanitarian uh, crisis? Well, that was one of the, the, the beautiful things at this summit. We were talking much more about solutions than about problems. Uh, and indeed, like you say, the problem is very clear. Uh, and, and most people realize that by now. Um, we do rely on many others to take that you know, to, to, to address the root causes of that problem. We are reducing our own footprint and our own emissions. 
But of course, that is not something that we can do alone. Everyone in the world needs to make their contributions. One of the things is, I think, as a humanitarian community, expressing our concerns, we can inspire that. But on the other hand, the risks are rising already, and we need to face them. And especially as a humanitarian organization, we want to not just do more disaster response, but help people to become more resilient in the face of those rising risks. And we heard so many solutions that, that people can employ. That's Martijn van Aalst, the director of the Red Cross, Red Crescent Climate Center, on the line from Amsterdam in the Netherlands, speaking to Kumbele Mujelele. In each and every one of us, there, there is a pebbles and graves. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that pebbles. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of Monday, Monday motivation, motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by Design, be the architect of your life. Only on Channel Africa, the African, the African Perspective. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9am with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time 1000 African Voices with me Awurengwi C on Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa in Mombasa, Kenya, I am Diana Wanyonyi. Droplets spread virus. By following good respiratory hygiene, you protect the people around you from viruses such as cold, flu, and COVID-19. It's 7.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. The beginning of spring in South Africa's economic city of Johannesburg usually means the beginning of the art calendar for revelers. With the level two lockdown restrictions as a result of a coronavirus pandemic, things will be different this year. The 28th edition of the Arts Alive Festival officially kicked off this week and because of restrictions on gatherings, many digital platforms will carry the production. Yesterday, Jazz on the Lake went virtual. The concert featured performances from award-winning South African artists Zoe Mudiha, Shakaina Andile Yanana, Black Diamond, Tandin Dulu, Ami Faku and others. Poma Kubani Falta's report. We might not be packing our picnic baskets and laying our blankets on the Joburg Zoo Lake Park lawns for the Jazz on the Lake concert this year. But we will sure be tapping our feet to the soulful jazz tunes as Art Life 2020 
comes to us on digital platforms. Jazz singer and songwriter Zoe Mudicha has been using the past few months to reflect and write music on the gender-based violence and other social ills across the globe. It's changed the rhythm of how we normally live and exist. Initially, it was a very devastating time because there was a lot of plans, but it started becoming a time to reflect as well and a time to improve from the from the inside out and to do a lot of the inner work. Um, and I think it was a beautiful time to release my sophomore album, Ingane Kwane, which is a love letter to black bodies all over the world. Although she draws her energy from live audiences, Zoe says she is slowly adjusting to the new norm and excited to perform for a virtual audience. I consider myself to be very much an empath um, and I think it gets to be a power that I utilize when there's a lot of live audiences. When I'm in a space with people, I really feel everyone's spirit and emotion and I really feel that I can connect with an audience a lot better uh, with there being a live interaction, you know. I definitely do miss that, but um, I think... In this time, I'm trying to perform in good faith, knowing that people that are watching the show are excited to experience something and are excited to watch something. And I think I'll definitely have that at the back of my mind while performing. Teacher and pianist Andile Yenana says the lockdown created a lot of anxiety for him. Will I ever come out of this alive? Will will the music industry still be there? I mean, um, we're waiting for one, and then what happens after one? Is it gonna be really normal? However, Level Two has awarded Yenana the opportunity to travel from KZN and be part of the Atta Life Festival. I come from a generation, you know, where things were done differently. So life for me will always be life. I'm slowly getting into this digital sphere. Um, it's the real industrial revolution coming in. So I can't be left outside. Preparing for the for the Sunday show was a bit of a challenge, you know, in KZN. Um, so I had to travel. The last time I was on a flight was in January. So you can imagine, you know, what kind of anxieties I had. Vocalist and composer Tandin Duli is still trying to wrap her head around the virtual space. She says preparing for the show and performing with a band is something she has been longing for. Um, it's the first show that I've really played um, this year. So I look forward to seeing how we're going to be making art um, going forward. The live space really makes it wonderful to interact with the audience. And I, I feel like the audience is part of the band because the energy that people bring to the show is part of the music. Working on the virtual space, it's a very beautiful space because it gives an opportunity to people, for example, who are not in the city or in the country to watch what it is that is being streamed. 
Arts Alive events will be recorded at the Joburg Theatre and in other regions of the city. The festival will showcase virtual arts, educational workshops and masterclasses, music, theatre, poetry, dance within the month of September as well stretching through until December. Pilma Gubane, Johannesburg. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gones Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It's 7.49 Central African Time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. Tanzania and Uganda have signed an agreement to pave the way for the construction of a crude oil pipeline running from Ugandan oil fields to the Tanzanian port of Tanga. Uganda discovered oil reserves in 2006 and needs the planned East African crude oil pipeline to be in place to start commercial production. According to the two governments, the pipeline is estimated to cost 3.5 billion US dollars. Petro South Africa will begin hearings into the unauthorized sale of South Africa's crude oil reserves. The sale of 10.3 million barrels happened between December 2015 and March 2016. The unauthorized sale of crude oil reserves occurred during the tenure of former Energy Minister Tina Yomat-Peterson. At the time, she told Parliament uh, there was no such sale, saying instead that it was a strategic rotation of oil resources. 
Zimbabwe's small-scale and artisanal miners have been urged to exercise caution in their operations as cases of mine accidents leading to deaths and injuries arrive. The call was made by Mines and Mining Development Minister Winston Chitando during a visit to Tosk Mine in Chagutu, where efforts are underway to rescue five workers trapped underground following mine shaft collapse. Minister Chitando says while many, particularly youths, were being employed through the gold mining sector, it is wise for the workers to consider orderly and careful mining to avoid injuries and loss of life. The South African Health Department has warned that legal action will be taken against funeral undertakers who contravene the law. This comes after a group affiliated to 17 associations and forums announced that it would go on a three-day strike starting this morning to demand improved working conditions and higher remuneration. The group is also demanding the outsourcing of mortuary facilities and that a government change of rules regarding certificates of competence. However, the department has released a statement insisting that practitioners must be in the possession of a valid certificate of competence. The department's Murdoch Ramatova. Or rather, my apologies, uh, I've been unable to actually find, or rather have my fingers on that soundbite. I'll have it for you as and when I get it. The National Funerals Practitioners Association of South Africa and the Unification Task Team has called for a nationwide shutdown of all funeral parlors this morning. They are expected to hold national strikes across all provinces. Napufa President uh, Muzilengwa says there would be no removals from hospitals or homes, no burials and no funeral supplies. The U.S. dollar is trading at 380.36 Nigerian Nara, 11.38 Botswana Pula, 107.57 Kenyan Shilling and 19.92 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, Brazil won U.S. dollar will cost you 5 rule 31 Russia, 74 rubles 87 India, 73 rupees 29 In China, a dollar is changing hands at 61.83 and in South Africa, it will cost you 16 rand 73 the U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,948 and platinum at $938 per ounce. Brand crude $40 a barrel. Channel Africa, your favorite channel. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327, or tweet us at Channel Africa One. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Sekelanzia by Malé. Goodbye and stay safe. Second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment, 
to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. In our top stories, Angola's doctors protest against police brutality. WHO announces a record one-day increase in coronavirus infections and a reported attempt by Iranian government to assassinate U.S. Ambassador to South Africa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning. Angola's Doctors' Union has led around 100 protesters in a march through the city center in Luanda to denounce police brutality and demand an investigation into the suspicious death of Dr. Silvio Dalla in police custody. Dalla was arrested for driving without a face mask on September 1, supposedly breaching anti-coronavirus regulations. Police claimed Dalla suffered a heart attack while he was in custody. However, questions were raised after Dalla's body was sent to the mall covered in blood with scarring to his head. Angola's government imposed sanitary restrictions in March to help fight the COVID-19 pandemic, with soldiers deployed to help police implement the rules. The World Health Organization has announced a record one-day increase in the number of uh, new coronavirus infections, with just over 300,000 cases reported in the last 24 hours. The UN Health Agency says deaths have risen by more than 5,500, bringing the global total to over 900,000. The biggest increases in infections are in India, the U.S. and Brazil. Meanwhile, South Africa has recorded 20 new COVID-19-related deaths in the last 24-hour cycle, bringing the national death toll to 15,447. 1,579 new coronavirus infections have been recorded, bringing the cumulative number of cases to 649,793. Zoleka Kotasha reports. Of the 20 new COVID-19-related fatalities, Gauteng in the Western Cape recorded six deaths each, while KwaZulu-Natal in the Eastern Cape registered four each. 
Meanwhile, all nine provinces recorded increases in coronavirus infections, with Gauteng, the epicenter of the pandemic in the country, accounting for most of the cases at 309 infections. Six refugees from South Sudan have been killed and four others injured in a resettlement camp in Madiokolo in northwestern Uganda. Police say 13 villagers have been arrested in connection with the deaths. The killings happened after a number of refugees assaulted a local man who was grazing his cattle near the resettlement camp. Uganda hosts some 1.4 million refugees, more than any other country in Africa, with most coming from neighboring South Sudan. Zimbabwean authorities have arrested four foreigners at Chirundu for smuggling 25 monkeys from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Two Congolese nationals, a Malawian and a Zambian, were intercepted by Zimbabwe Parks and Wildlife Management Authority officials with the assistance of the police. The suspects are in custody and are believed to have been transporting the monkeys to South Africa. The smuggled monkeys are a rare species, only peculiar to the DRC. The Iranian government is reportedly weighing an assassination attempt against the U.S. ambassador to South Africa, Lana Marx. A story about a U.S. intelligence reporter has been referenced by two officials who are familiar with the intelligence. Showing Price Peace reports that U.S. intelligence believes that the Iranian embassy in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, is involved in the alleged plot. The Politico story says U.S. officials had been aware of a general threat against Ambassador Lana Marks since the autumn months in South Africa and that intelligence linked to the U.S. envoy had become more specific in recent weeks. The intelligence suggests that an attack on Ambassador Marks is one of several alleged options. Officials believe Iran's government is considering in retaliation for the assassination of Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani in January. The Politico report says U.S. officials had made Ambassador Marks aware of the intelligence. The report indicates that Ambassador Marx's personal friendship with President Donald Trump might have been a consideration for the Iranians in their alleged targeting of her. And in sport, Football Kenya Federation's electoral board has released the final list of delegates eligible to vote at both the country and national levels of the scheduled Football Kenya Federation elections. A total of 18 Kenyan Premier League clubs, each carrying a vote, 10 National Super League clubs, 10 Division 1 clubs, 3 Women Premier League sides and 1 Women's Division 1 club. Kahawa Queens will participate in the national elections set for the 17th of October. Football Kenya Executive Committee member Tom Alila is urging the electoral board to be impartial. It's we have agreed to write to electoral board to set this meeting so that we can agree on the parameters on how elections are going to be done in issues of security, their security, and also security of delegates coming to uh, vote. This is very important. They need. We know there are thugs in Nairobi that normally are hired by one of the people we are standing with in uh, in, in Nairobi here to micromanage election or to intimidate even uh, the, the, the 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 branch uh, the, the the delegates. We are not going to allow that. And finally, Japan's Naomi Osaka came from a set down to beat Victoria Azarenka of Belarus to win the U.S. Open and clinch her third Grand Slam title. 
Osaka, the fourth seat, overcame her unseated opponent 166363 inside a near-empty Athayashi Stadium at Flushing Meadows. Osaka of Japanese and Haitian heritage wore different masks honoring victims of racial injustice and police brutality in each round of the tournament. She also donned face coverings bearing the names of Breonna Taylor, Elijah McLean, Ahmoud Aubrey, Trevon Martin, George Floyd and Philando Castell. It brought 22-year-old Osaka's Hall of Tennis major trophies to three after her victories at the 2018 U.S. Open and 2019 Australian Open. Recapping our top stories, Angola's doctors protest against police brutality. WHO announces a record one-day increase in coronavirus infections and a reported attempt by Iranian government to assassinate U.S. ambassador to South Africa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Hello and a warm welcome to Life by Design right here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. I'm Amanda Machaka. On Life by Design, we talk to people that inspire purpose. These are people from around the continent who live a life of purpose. They share their journey on how they discovered what they were meant to do. And this is with the, with the hope of inspiring you to live your life by design as well. You can catch us every Monday for your dose of Monday motivation on Channel 802 on DSTV Audio Bouquet. We're also available on podcast and via live stream on the Channel Africa website www.channelafrica.co.za On Facebook we are Living Life by Design on Twitter and on Instagram it's at living underscore life by design Today on the show, we are joined by Marketing Solutions Guru, Dinsualo Maluleke. She is the founder and managing director of PM Marketing Solutions, a PR and marketing strategy agency. Dinsualo is a former production and traffic manager at KPMG. She has a strong passion for inspiring people and does this through motivation talks. She's a positive vibe speaker and a successful businesswoman. And she joins us now on the line. Welcome to Life by Design on Channel Africa, Tinsualo, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Johannesburg um, and raised in Johannesburg. I'm the Joburg girl. You're the the Joburg girl. How was life growing up in the city? You know, usually I speak to people who've come from different parts of the country and then they are in the city of gold for career opportunities. Really, do I speak to someone that has been raised here? Um, So what was life like growing up here in Josie? Life was great. I think my parents really fought hard for us to have the best life um, possible. Grew up in, uh, I was born in Park Lane Hospital, grew up for the, I think the first five years of my life, we lived in Soweto, in um, Protea, then moved to the suburbs thereafter. They really tried, they really did their best to give us the best life and yeah. Right, beautiful. Mm -hmm. And what were your dreams in terms of uh, career pursuit? Ever since I was young, um, I remember I wanted to become a flight attendant. I think I was just so inspired and motivated and caught in, in the attires and how you were served and how they just so, you know, they're eloquent, they, they're smart, they look pretty. 
And that's what I had in mind. Then growing up at around um, what's grade, five, grade seven, standard five, um, I had a great interest in politics. It uh, pushed right through matric. Then um, when I needed to now do the subject choices of after matriculating, um, I realized, no, maybe let me try the communication part because that's what I was advised, that it's broad and, you know, you can still have your politics in it, you can still have your advertising, you can still have... So the reason why I ended up then choosing uh, communication science and psychology is because I was able to get a variety of what I literally wanted ever since I was growing up besides the flight attendant part. So do you think that you made the best choice? Because now, having pursued communications and psychology, are you able then to say that it's a good choice because I can see my abilities expressed in what I chose in my career and therefore informing my purpose in life? Absolutely. I wouldn't have um, chosen any better um, degree to have studied. It literally it encompasses everything that, 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 I, that I've studied and that I'm actually doing currently now. Who do you say you look up to or who inspires you in the field that you're playing in? You know, I've been asked this question multiple times. There hasn't been a specific person that I would say I am inspired by so-and-so. Um, it's more, I think, me getting to, to know myself and be like, wow, there's a lot of people, however, that I admire. Um, and it's people that are mostly not well-known but are within my circle that our women are doing well in whatever that they um, decided to sphere and venture into. And those people would be the greatest people that I would say, wow, I am really inspired by them. Right. So communications, as you said, is broad. And you decided to go with PR and marketing. I did communications as well. And I chose the broadcasting side, the media side of it. Why particularly PR and marketing? PR and marketing was chosen because then I get to deal with people. I'm a people person. Just that. I think that caught me. And I was like, I don't want to be secluded. I want to be out there and engage with people and help people and you know, bring out the best of them in whatever that they want to do. What did you say are your success tools that you are using? Because it's not an industry that is a very easy to navigate and you, you've you been doing well. And um, it's also, you know, it has big guns, if I can say it like that. How do you then ensure that you, you keep succeeding and are not intimidated by the big players in the industry? Well, firstly, it's a matter of knowing yourself. I think once you've gathered yourself and you know what you want, um, it's a matter of being firm and being able to say, this is what I stand for and this is what I want. Another thing is in business, there's no need to be competing with anyone. Um, do it at your own pace. And your work always speaks for itself. Um, as, as much as there are big guns out there, once you are there and people know about you, they'll always come to you. So there's no um, need to compete and, you know, go way over above what you're able to do because you're trying to um, impress people. It's about who you are and doing you. And by doing you and doing your best, then business comes to you. You strive for excellence in all that you do. Why is this important to you? Because excellence is is what we all want to achieve. We all don't want to be down there and be like, okay, yeah, I'm fine at this level. My whole mindset is that you should excel in everything you do. You should do 
you know, once you excel, then you, you, you 